Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 236, Return to Scholarship. This show is ad-free due to member support, and as a way of thanking members for keeping the show independent, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts. Right now, the members are listening to an episode on Anglo-Saxon laws, and there's some really strange stuff in there. Here's a clip. Quote, if a Welsh slave kills an Englishman, then he who owns him shall surrender him to the lord and the kinsmen of the slain man, or pay 60 shillings for his life. End quote. So it's not clear here, but this sounds like it's a fine on top of the Ware Guild, which you're probably responsible for as well as the owner of the slave. So is this just for Welshmen? <laughs> That's the other thing. As far as I can tell, if you have an Anglo-Saxon slave, then eh, you're not going to get an extra fine. It's just if you own a Welsh slave. It's like breed-specific laws. So right. it's like owning a pit bull. <laughs> if you've got a Welsh slave, you know what you're doing. Watch the f*** out. <laughs> you don't look at me like that. You knew what you did. You had him in your house. We all said, no, don't take on Davith. They're dangerous. He's over there carving out longbows. You can get instant access to that episode and all the other members' episodes by signing up for membership at thebritishhistorypodcast.com for only about the price of a latte per month. And thank you very much to Adrian, Nada, and Don for signing up already. Quote, I cannot find anything better in man than that he know, and nothing worse than that he be ignorant. End quote. That's a quote from Alfred. And I think it's my favorite quote. But the nice thing about Alfred is that he's a man for all seasons. There's something in his reign for everyone. He's got an excellent comeback story. He goes through a sort of Che Guevara phase. He's got this period where he's riding around with a cavalry strike force like King Arthur. He's got a pious side, a scholarly side, a horny side. He's got a keen mind for politics, for manipulation, and for tactics. Whatever your need... There's an Alfred for that. But for me, the aspect I like most, even more than the fact that he and I share an immunodisorder, is his love of knowledge and his lack of patience for ignorance. And this was far more than a simple talking point or a political maneuver for him. This wasn't a bald attempt at burnishing his legacy. Rather, I think there's evidence that he considered the spread of knowledge as a personal mission in life. At this point in our story, in the mid-880s, Alfred has reached his mid-30s and has gone through a tremendous amount of change in that time. He's suffered incredible hardship, and he's found incredible successes in that hardship. But life is change, and looking at his behaviors early in his life and comparing them to the 880s, it's clear that Alfred had changed a great deal from the early years of his reign. Last week, I pointed out that he cast himself as part of a continuity of law that began with Moses and the burning bush. But when I look at Alfred's later reign, I don't see Moses. I see King Solomon. I see the famed king of Israel and successor to David. And I'm saying that not just because King Solomon was famous for his carnal appetite, a fact that has caused countless Catholic schoolboys to snicker while reading the Song of Solomon but more because he was famous for his wisdom and attention to justice. You know the Bible story about the baby that was being fought over and how the king ordered the baby to be cut in half, knowing that the real parent would freak out and withdraw their claim. Yeah, that was King Solomon. Solomon was wise. 
And I know some of you are probably saying that sounds more like recklessness than wisdom. But for the time, threatening to cut a baby in half was pretty damn wise. We're talking about the Iron Ages here. And beyond wisdom, Solomon was also a king who reorganized his military, developed the economy of his kingdom greatly, and used a sizable portion of that wealth to build the first temple, all with a plan of bringing his kingdom closer to God. If there was a figure in the Bible that Alfred felt a kinship with, I would wager that it was Solomon. Because like Solomon, Alfred was also focused upon reforming his military, fixing the economy, and bringing his subjects closer to God. And make no mistake about it, this attention to scholarship was Alfred's version of building the first temple. Now, Z often reminds me that not everyone went to Catholic school, so I need to explain these references. But I'm pretty sure that you've at least heard of the first temple, thanks in large part to Steven Spielberg. You know the Ark of the Covenant, that thing that Indiana Jones was trying to steal? Well, the first temple in Jerusalem was dedicated to Yahweh and was said to have housed the Ark. It was the place that contained the Holy of Holies, which was where the name of God actually resided. And that's significant because the name of God was considered to be so sacred that it couldn't be spoken publicly. In fact, even today, we're not sure what it is. All we have is YHWH, and we've added in some vowels so we could pronounce it. And granted, a lot of thought has gone into that, but ultimately, it's unknown as to how exactly the consonants and vowels fit together, which is how we've ended up with Yahweh and Jehovah. But the fact of the matter is, it could just as easily be Yahoo Wahoo for all we know. But divine linguistic tangents aside, the point that I'm trying to get at is that the first temple was where God lived, at least part-time. The building itself was basically the temporal manifestation of the spiritual. And that appears to be what Alfred was after with his focus on wisdom in his later reign. Take, for example, his correspondence with Archbishop Fulk of Reims. Alfred wrote to him to ask for scholars to be sent to his court. Specifically, he wanted Grimbald. But he didn't just write a request. He also sent a ton of gifts to Folk as well. And this will become a theme. Alfred wasn't above putting skin in the game and paying for what he wanted. But what I want to focus on right now was Folk's response. Because in writing back to him, here's what he had to say. Quote, You administer strenuously the profit of the kingdom committed to you from above both by striving for and defending its peace with warlike weapons, with divine assistance, and by earnestly desiring with a religious heart to raise the dignity of the ecclesiastical order with spiritual weapons. Alfred was seeking spiritual weapons because ecclesiastical life in his kingdom had decayed. And from the context in later portions of that letter, it's clear that Alfred felt that the English people had abandoned scholarly and religious thought. And he was asking the church to send him a 9th century version of St. Augustine, just as it had done in 597. And that's a heavy charge. I mean, he's basically comparing the 9th century to pre-Christian Anglo-Saxons of the 6th century. And those earlier Anglo-Saxons, even the ones after the conversion, were pretty rough and tumble. I mean, they were marrying their stepmothers, sleeping with nuns, keeping concubines, and pretty much Anglo-Saxoning as hard as they could. But if you thought this was just an isolated temper tantrum by Alfred, think again. 
This letter does not exist in isolation. Alfred writes things like this frequently in his notes and letters. For example, Alfred also claimed that when he took the throne, he didn't know of a single person who understood Latin south of the Humber. And elsewhere, he complained that there were religious houses that contained entire libraries that few had the ability to read. And he said that the fault for all this illiteracy wasn't the Vikings. Instead, Alfred lay the blame directly on the Anglo-Saxon people themselves, saying that illiteracy was rampant long before the Northmen started raiding everything. Now, of course, this could be hyperbole. If you're trying to build a new order, it's not a bad tactic to throw some shade at the old order. However, I think that the evidence actually bears Alfred out. Asser speaks of how Alfred's eldermen were illiterate and initially resistant to learning how to read. And this image of pervasive illiteracy is actually supported by the historical record when we look at documentary evidence. The Anglo-Saxons were producing manuscripts at a fairly decent clip all the way until 860. And then suddenly it falls off a cliff. Now granted, we do have accounts of Vikings burning monasteries and churches, many of which would have probably housed reading materials. But it looks like Alfred might be right that there was a withdrawal from scholarly thought. For example, we've spoken about several examples of holy buildings that were initially claimed to be burned by the Vikings, only to be examined later on and have it come out that they were actually abandoned or sold off long before the Vikings showed up. And while you might be tempted to blame the sudden drop in manuscripts of 860 on the great heathen army, I should point out that they didn't hit East Anglia until 865, which is five years after the drop in production. Furthermore, when we look at charters, it becomes clear that literacy in Latin, which was the lingua franca of Western thought during this entire era, have been declining for decades. Beginning in the early 800s, probably around the reign of Alfred's grandfather, King Egbert, the use of Latin was being abandoned. And by the time that Alfred took the throne, it had hit crisis proportions. For example, even in Canterbury, which was the seat of Christian thought for the Anglo-Saxons, we have embarrassingly bad Latin being produced. For example, there's a diploma from Canterbury in 873 that is just shameful. On it, there are little more than strings of formula that don't really apply to the grant. And then they are bookended by poorly written Latin transitions that were filled with obvious grammatical errors. So basically, even in Canterbury, fluency in Latin had vanished by the time of Alfred. And the use of Latin in the diploma seems to have more to do with its association with authority than it does with its actual utility. I mean, here's how bad it is. The author of this document even copy and pasted a witness list from a charter that was from over 30 years earlier. So you have all these witnesses, many of whom are probably dead, being listed on this diploma. Consequently, there are questions as to whether or not the scribe knew that he was copying a witness list. And that raises the question of whether or not he even could read and understand names. And frankly, when I looked at it, it kind of reminded me of when I had to deal with the occasional pro se plaintiff. Now, pro se is when you decide to represent yourself in court. It's something that's so crazy that not even lawyers do it. But it does happen on occasion. And when it happens, they end up filing a lot of documents. And in those, you do see some legal language. There's always a few bits from the Constitution, like Constitution's the big pro se go-to. And then there's some stuff that they've seen on Law and & Order. And then, just to round it out, you have a metric f ton of wherefores and hereafters. 
And that's essentially what Canterbury had done with this diploma. It wasn't legal Latin. It wasn't even Latin. It was just gibberish. And keep in mind that this was written by a scribe, a person whose entire job was based around reading and writing in Latin. So you're forced to wonder if even religious scribes in Canterbury were functionally illiterate, in Latin at least, then what's the likelihood that people elsewhere in the country could understand Latin? Not good, right? And among all of this, you have Alfred, someone whose interest in learning was palpable and who apparently had been devouring any bits of knowledge he could get his hands on. And among all that learning, among all that searching for answers to his ultimate question of how do I protect my kingdom and my throne, he undoubtedly came across great writers like Bede and Alcuin. He even seems to have pulled the concept of an English people from Bede himself. And can you imagine the shock that Alfred had when he first heard of Bede's Historia and realized that there was a time when the Anglo-Saxons had a culture of scholarship, that there was a time when people could read and write fluently in Latin, and then somehow, tragically, in less than 200 years, all of that had decayed. It makes Alfred's preface to pastoral care that we talked about last week make a lot more sense, doesn't it? He was looking back to a time when everything was evergreen and peaceful and deeply pious. Times, I'll point out, that never existed. The time of Bede was also the time of Athelbald of Mercia, and you know what he was up to. But Alfred had built a cultural imaginary, and it was obviously an imaginary that shaped him at a very deep level. But the truth is that Alfred's earlier intellectual life wasn't the complete pit of darkness that he'd have us believe. Because of his station, Alfred had access to tutors. And his father, King Athelwolf, had a Frankish secretary who enabled him to have correspondence with people like Abbot Lupus. And while Alfred does point out that he was slow to learn how to read, he did learn how to read before he took the throne, at least in Old English. And that must mean that there were people available to teach him but when he looked at Wessex during the reign of his father, and even during his own reign, and he compared it to how he imagined the time of Bede was, it's not surprising that all of a sudden he thought Wessex was just a backwater, ignorant cesspit. And I think that's how we get these entries in his writing that sound a bit like Gildas. Just this really grim look at Wessex that describes everything as awful. Only there is a difference between Gildas and Alfred. With Gildas... His main theme was pretty much, everything is ruined forever, f*** you. But with Alfred, he's using those complaints as a way to make a case for change. It's not nihilism. It's a sales pitch. He's not coming at this from the perspective of Gildas. He's more like King Solomon. Alfred has acquired an enormous amount of wealth and power, and he's going to wield it to build his version of the first temple. But part of that involved swallowing his pride. The Anglo-Saxons, the people who were so skilled at thought that they had been sought out by mighty Charlemagne, were now in the position where they needed to seek assistance from the continent to even be able to understand books written in Latin. That was quite the fall. And that's how we end up with that letter to Archbishop Fulk of Reims. Alfred had sent a flattering letter to the archbishopric, thanking the church for dragging the English people out of ignorance in the time of Augustine and begging them to do it again. And that letter was accompanied by an abundance of gifts, including dogs. And who doesn't love dogs? 
So, of course, it worked. Archbishops in the Middle Ages loved gifts and flattery. But this wasn't the first time that Alfred had sought out thinkers. In fact, he was actively seeking scholars all throughout the West. And I mentioned some of their names last week. But the reason why I'm talking about it again this week is because what Alfred was doing wasn't a minor thing. This wasn't a side hobby, and he wasn't just paying lip service. No, he was throwing his considerable weight and power behind this singular goal of reviving the spiritual weapons of the English people. And it began long before Alfred's correspondence with Archbishop Fulk and his trash-talking of the English. It had actually begun long before, in the early 880s. Alfred was king, and as king, he no doubt had access to great tomes of knowledge. But unfortunately, until he could find someone to read them to him, since most of them were written in Latin, those books were nothing more than fancy paperweights. And apparently, he'd been telling the truth about the lack of literacy in Latin in his kingdom. Though, he might have been exaggerating by claiming that it was that way for all the kingdoms south of the Humber. Because when Alfred went out and hired translators, he actually didn't have to go all that far. In fact, he just went across the border to his wife's homeland, Mercia. And there, he found four men who could apparently do the task. Their names were Werefirth, Plegmund, Athelstan, and this is true, Werewolf. It's just like the best name ever. And once he realized that there was no chance of him finding any translators in Wessex, he sent for them. And he promised them places of honor and incredible gifts, all in exchange for their services. The first to accept was Werefirth, the Bishop of Worcester. Werefirth was an interesting figure because he was a member of King Cheowulf II's court, and he had stayed on and served his successor, Athelred. So he was powerful enough, or at least neutral enough, to survive the regime change. And we can assume that he was friendly to the new order that was being put in place in Mercia. And he also appears to have been friendly with Alfred, because once he accepted the appointment, he was a dedicated subject. He took to his new duties with enthusiasm, providing new books for Alfred's library, and even working to improve the defenses of Worcester in accordance with Alfred's plans. Now, Plegmund came with him, and according to legend, he was an incredibly pious hermit. However, he appears to have given up that solitary life, because here he was aiding Alfred. And in addition to his scholarship, Plegmund was apparently a gifted administrator, and that would serve him later in life, because, spoiler alert, he will eventually become the Archbishop of Canterbury. But at this point, what was most useful to Alfred was probably his easy-to-understand and clear style of writing. See, Plegman's charters were, how do I put this, readable. It was through his work, along with Abbot Bjornhelm of St. Augustine's Monastery, that they began to reverse the damage that was presented so starkly in the Canterbury Diploma of 873. All of a sudden, charters started to convey information, rather than just gibberish. And I think I can speak for everyone who's read late 9th century West Saxon charters when I say, thank you, Plegmund. Now, Bjornhelm, the guy who was helping him out, is best known for being Alfred's emissary to the Pope. He traveled to Rome to apologize for the lack of alms, and he delivered a promise to always make an annual contribution. And this, by the way, is the origin of Peter's pence. That's how far back it goes. Now, rounding out the troop were Athelstan and my favorite guy, Werewolf. 
But unfortunately, despite the excellent name, we have no idea who these two people were. Asser just describes them as priests and chaplains. But by bringing this group to his court, and by honoring them with positions and gifts, Alfred was making his first down payment on the acquisition of wisdom. And it was well placed. He now had a cadre of scholars who could read to him any books in Latin that he might acquire. And that's important because as we talked about earlier, Alfred had not yet learned how to read Latin. Now it doesn't look like he could read Old English, and he likely understood some Latin. But as for the fluency necessary to read it, he wasn't there yet. So these four men helped fill the gap by doing the difficult task of reading the books, then translating them into Old English, and then answering any questions that the king raised, which were probably quite a few. And this would occur at any moment when Alfred had time for it, night and day. They were always on call. And it's at this point that Alfred likely became thoroughly acquainted with Bede and began to yearn for the days where the Anglo-Saxon kingdoms were peppered with monasteries devoted to the pursuit of knowledge. The little asides that we read in pastoral care and the overt complaints that we read of in his letters to Archbishop Fulk probably all found their beginnings here. But the point is that Alfred's world was expanding. His mind was developing. And here's the thing with learning. It's a bit like a Cheez-It. You can't just stop with one. Before you know it, the box is gone and you're looking for another box. And Alfred was getting down to the orange dust. So he sent messengers across the channel. He wanted further tutors. He wanted more reading materials. He wanted to learn more. But just because Alfred had discovered the joys of learning didn't mean that the world had stopped. It was still moving. And at around this time, a fleet of Danes had set sail across the channel and they struck Rochester. This was a big one, and it had the potential of being really bad. But Alfred's defenses were already in the process of being constructed. So before the Viking army could storm the settlement, the gates were slammed shut, and the walls were manned. And for the Vikings, this was inconvenient. But it wasn't altogether fatal. These armies had found plenty of opportunities to practice their siege techniques when they were on the continent, and what was waiting outside the walls of Rochester was a well-practiced Viking army. They knew how to handle this. This was just another day at the office. But what they didn't know is that something had changed in Wessex. These weren't the same people they had been years earlier. And the Viking army probably figured that out pretty quick. Because Asser tells us that, quote, They were unable to take the city because the citizens defended themselves bravely, end quote. That suggests that upon their arrival, the Scandinavian army attempted to take the walls and were repelled by the people of Rochester. You can imagine the invading pirates rushing towards the walls, expecting an easy assault the way things had been for decades. And then suddenly, from on top of the walls, appeared a line of soldiers armed with bows, spears, maybe sharp sticks and rocks, pretty much whatever. And they were all ready to repel the oncoming Scandinavians. Alfred's new military was working. The citizens of Rochester had the training, the equipment, and the defenses necessary to hold them off, at least for now. But the Danes were nothing if not adaptive, and so they adjusted their strategy. If they couldn't get into Rochester by force, then 
they'd just create the conditions necessary for the people of Rochester to want to invite them in. So they began to construct a fort right outside the gates of Rochester. And that was a bit of a problem for the people within the walls because it meant that no one could get out. And that meant that as soon as the food and water ran out within Rochester, the defenses were likely to follow. And I imagine that the attitude within the Scandinavian fort was one of cocky amusement. The walls and defenses were a surprise, but these Saxon farmers were just delaying the inevitable. They were destined for pillage and slavery. It was just a matter of time. But what Sven and Olaf probably didn't know was that holding out against a long-term siege wasn't the plan. Rochester just had to hold out long enough for reinforcements to show up. And word of the invasion had spread. And the military units that were holding the other burrs throughout Wessex were being activated. Alfred was no longer constrained by a fickle, slow, and unreliable fur that was constrained by the whims of his lords. Now, his army was always on call, professional, and at his command. And it seems that the Danes had no idea of this shift in military posture, because they were taken completely by surprise when a massive army appeared at Rochester with Alfred at its head. The disparity of forces was so great that the Vikings abandoned their fortress, leaving all the slaves and horses from their earlier raids in Francia and fled to their ships as fast as their legs could carry them. Rather than being a successful siege, they had just lost all of their booty from their prior raids. It turned out that Wessex wasn't the easy target they hoped for, so once they got on board their longships, they hastily made sail to get as far away from this country as they could and went back to Francia. Alfred's plan was working. The heathens had been repelled. If anything, this was a vindication of his commitment to the physical and spiritual defenses of his kingdom. But if Wessex was to withstand what was coming, they would need to put even more work into them. Alfred's task had only just begun. He needed allies, both on the ground and also in heaven. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. And why don't you join us on Twitter? We're at British Podcast, and it's fun. And there are other communities you can join, and you can find links to all of them in the upper right-hand corner of thebritishhistorypodcast.com. Thanks for listening. All right, it's time for another pub quiz. You know the drill. Question one. The Witan was a long-standing power structure in Wessex. It was filled with noblemen whose families were in power for generations. After Alfred retook the throne, what happened to the majority of the members of the Witan? Question two, true or false? Following Alfred's return to the throne, the Witan was strengthened. Question three, what occurred at the Council of Langdena? Question four, what did Alfred do to reorganize the West Saxon military? Question 5. The Welsh were not pleased with Athelred of Mercia, and for good reason, they were at war. However, the Welsh scribes did make note of one of Athelred's attributes. What was it? Question 6. Rodri the Great had several sons, and one of those sons ruled over Gwyneth and fought against Athelred of Mercia at Conway. 
We're told that he gained vengeance for Rodri, so we can assume that he defeated Athelred. Name that son of Rodri. Question 7. At some point after the Battle of Conway, Asser tells us that the sons of Rodri made an alliance. It was an alliance that would later cause them trouble, though they didn't know that at the time. Who was this alliance with? Question 8. Alfred reformed more than simply the military. He also reformed the idea of what makes a noble. What two tasks did he require of anyone who held a secular or ecclesiastical title? Question 9. He also sought to reform the legal code of Wessex. He studied the laws of Wessex, Kent, Mercia, and even seems to have included some Carolingian concepts. And he made sure that his code contained 120 laws, so that way his rule would carry echoes of Moses and even Pentecost. And in 893, it was completed. And what was his code of laws called? Question 10. Alfred's focus on literacy and wisdom wasn't just because he was a fan of reading Rainbow. Instead, it was all in line with what he thought his responsibility was as king. So what was his goal with bringing literacy and wisdom to his people? All right, let's see how you did. Question 1. The Witan was a long-standing power structure in Wessex. It was filled with noblemen whose families were in power for generations. After Alfred retook the throne, what happened to the majority of the members of the Witan? We don't know, but they vanished from the record. Seven out of the 12 members of the Witan just up and disappeared, and they were replaced by eight new people. Question two, true or false? Following Alfred's return to the throne, the Witan was strengthened. False, it was dramatically weakened. Power now flowed from the king, not the Witan. Question three, what occurred at the Council of Langdena? Alfred, with the support of the Witan, disinherited his nephews and made his children the only legitimate heirs to the throne. Question four, what did Alfred do to reorganize the West Saxon military? He dramatically increased the Ferd, creating two separate groups that took their service in shifts with one in service and one at home at any point in time. He also ordered the construction of burrs all throughout the kingdom that would serve as fortified that would serve as fortified defensive structures for the third, but also could be messaging and resupply stations. Question five. The Welsh were not pleased with Athelred of Mercia, and for good reason, they were at war. However, the Welsh scribes did make note of one of Athelred's attributes. What was it? His beautiful flowing hair. Question six. Rodri the Great had several sons, and one of those sons ruled over Gwyneth and fought against Athelred of Mercia at Conway. We're told that he gained vengeance for Rodri, so we can assume that he defeated Athelred. Name that son of Rodri. King Anarod ap Rodri. Question seven. At some point after the Battle of Conway, Asser tells us that the sons of Rodri made an alliance. It was an alliance that would later cause them trouble, though they didn't know that at the time. Who was this alliance with? The Danes of Northumbria. Question eight. 
Alfred reformed more than simply the military. He also reformed the idea of what makes a noble. What two tasks did he require of anyone who held a secular or ecclesiastical title? They had to know how to read, and they had to seek wisdom. Question 9. He also sought to reform the legal code of Wessex. He studied the laws of Wessex, Kent, Mercia, and even seems to have included some Carolingian concepts. And he made sure that his code contained 120 laws, so that way his rule would carry echoes of Moses and even Pentecost. And in 893, it was completed. And what was his code of laws called? The Doom Book. Doom was an old English word for laws. Question 10. Alfred's focus on literacy and wisdom wasn't just because he was a fan of reading Rainbow. Instead, it was all in line with what he thought his responsibility was as king. So what was his goal with bringing literacy and wisdom to his people? He was attempting to please God and gain his favor, because it is a king's duty to shepherd his people into righteous thinking. I hope you did well, and we'll see you on the next one.